Section 18 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 1, From the Beginning Until the Death of Alexander I, 1825, by Shimon Dubnev, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. Chapter 8. Polish Jewry During the Period of the Partitions. Part 3. 3. The Last Two Partitions and Berek Yoselovich The death struggle of Poland was approaching. The opponents of the May Constitution among the conservative elements of the country joined hands with the Russian government, which in its own sphere of influence had always been a baneful stumbling block in the path of progress. The result was the formation of the Confederacy of Targovitsa and the outbreak of civil war, summer 1792. Though severed from political life, the Jews nevertheless showed sympathy here and there with the men that fought for the new constitution. The Jewish tailors of Vilna undertook to furnish gratis 200 uniforms for the Army of Liberty. The communities of Sokachev and Pulavi contributed their might towards the patriotic funds. The Jews of Berdichev took part in the deputation of the local merchant, which went to meet Joseph Poniatowski, the commander-in-chief of the Polish army, and presented him with new instruments for the regimental music band. On many an occasion, the Jewish communities of Volinia and Podolia were the victims of enforced requisition from both belligerent armies. The community of Ostrog had to undergo the bombardment of the city by the Russian army in July 1792. The year 1793 saw the second partition of Poland between Russia and Prussia. Russia annexed Volinia with a part of the province of Kiev, Podolia, and the region of Minsk, Prussia, in turn, acquired the other part of Great Poland, Kalish, Plotsk, etc., with Danzig and Thorn. Once more, an enormous territory with hundreds of thousands of Jews was cut off from Poland. The unfortunate nation, seized with paroxysm of pain at this new amputation, burst forth against its torturers. The revolution of 1794 took its course. At the head of the uprising stood Kosciusko. Having been reared in the atmosphere of two great revolutions, the American and the French, he had the loftier conception of civic and political liberty than the liberalizing host of the Polish Schlachta. He was aware that no free country could exist without first abolishing the serfdom of the peasants and the inequality of the citizens. Even in the heat of his struggle for the salvation of the fatherland, the Polish leader occasionally gave proof of his democratic tendencies, and the oppressed classes could not but feel that this revolution was more than merely an affair of the Schlachta. The enthusiasm for liberty communicated itself to several sections of Polish Jewry. It was manifested during the prolonged Russo-Prussian siege of Warsaw in the summer and autumn of 1794, when, 
the whole population was called to arms to defend the capital. The very same Jews who but a little while ago had been attacked on the streets of Warsaw by the burghers and artisans and were mercilessly driven from the city by order of the administration, now, in the moment of danger, fought in the trenches shoulder to shoulder with their persecutors, digging ditches and throwing up earthworks. Frequently, at an alarm signal, the volunteers would rush out to fight back the besiegers. Amidst the whistling of bullets and bursting of shells, they repulsed the enemy's attacks side by side with the other Varsovians, furnishing their quota in wounded and killed, and yet keeping up their courage. Among the Jews defending Warsaw, the plan was conceived of forming a separate Jewish legion to fight for the country. At the head of this patriotic group stood Berek Yoselovich. Born about 1765 in the little town of Kretingen, Berek has traversed the thorny path that led the poor Jewish boy from the Jewish religious school, Heather, to the post of a pan's agent. He entered the employ of a high noble, the Bishop of Vilna, by the name of Mazarsky, and was thereby launched upon his remarkable career. Mazarsky often went abroad, especially to Paris, and always took his Jewish agent with him. During these travels, young Berek early acquired the French language and observed the life of the Parisian salons in which the master moved. The plain Polish Jew perceived a new world, and he could not help scenting the new tendencies floating about in the air of the world's capital on the eve of the Great Revolution. During the years of the Quadrennial Diet, Berek, who had given up his position with Mazarsky and had married in the meantime, lived in Praga, a suburb of Warsaw. In the atmosphere of patriotic excitement, the vague impressions which his contact with the Polish nobility and his foreign travels had left upon his mind came to maturity. The heroic figure of Kosciuszko and the siege of Warsaw gave these vague sensations a concrete form. He realized that it was his immediate duty to fight for the freedom of the country, for the salvation of the capital, where Poles and Jews were equally shut off and cooped up by the hand of the enemy. Now was the time to prove that even the stepchildren of the nation knew how to fight in the ranks of our sons and that they deserved a better lot. Accordingly, in September 1794, at the very height of the siege, Berek Yoselovich, conjoined with Joseph Aronovich, son of Aaron, a fellow Jew of the mind, applied to Kosciusko, the commander-in-chief, for permission to form a special regiment of light cavalry consisting of Jewish volunteers. Kosciusko immediately complied with their request and announced it joyfully in a special army order dated September 17, extolling the patriotic zeal of the originators of the plan, who remember the land in which they were born and know that its liberation will bestow upon them, the Jews, the same advantages as upon the others. 
Berek was appointed commander of the Jewish regiment. An appeal was issued calling for recruits and for contributions towards their equipment. Berek's appeal to his co-religionist was published in the official Gazette of Warsaw on October 1st. It was written in Polish, though couched in the solemn phraseology of the Bible. Listen, ye sons of the tribes of Israel, all ye in whose heart is implanted the image of God Almighty, all that are willing to help in the struggle for the fatherland. Know ye that now the time had come to consecrate to this all our strength. Truly, there are many mighty nobles, children of the Shlakka, and many great minds who are ready to lay down their lives. Why then should we, who are persecuted, not take to arms, seeing that we are the most oppressed people in the world? Why should we not labor to obtain our freedom which has been promised us just as firmly and sincerely as it has been to others? But first, we must show that we are worthy of it. I have had the happiness of being placed at the head of the regiment by my superiors. Awake then, and help to rescue oppressed Poland. Faithful brethren, let us fight for our country as long as a drop of blood is left in us. Though we ourselves may not live to see this our freedom, at least our children will live in tranquility and freedom and will not roam about like wild beasts, awake then like lions and leopards. Berek's language is crude and naive, and so is his political reasoning. While calling upon the Jews to join the mighty nobles in fighting for liberty, he evidently overlooked the fact that the liberty of the Jews was far from being secured by the liberty of the nobles, among whom Men with the humanitarian tendencies of uh, Kosciuszko were few and far between. Berek, however, found solace in the hope that the participation of the Jews in the struggle for Polish independence would bring about a change. He lived at a time when the Jews of Western Europe were eager to display their patriotic sentiments and civic virtues. Before his mind's eye, there probably floated the figures of Jews who, since 1789, had served in the Garde Nationale of Paris. Berek's enthusiasm succeeded in attracting many volunteers. In short time, a regiment of 500 men was made up. The Jewish Legion, which was hastily equipped with the scanty means supplied by the revolutionary government and by voluntary contributions, had the checkered appearance of militia. Yet the consciousness of military duty was keen in these men, many of whom carried arms for the first time in their lives. The Jewish regiment displayed its dauntless and self-sacrificing spirit on that fatal November 4th, the day of the terrible onslaught upon Praga by the Russian troops under Subarov. Among the 15,000 Poles, who lost their lives in the entrenchment of Praga, in the streets of Warsaw, or in the waves of the Vistula, was also the regiment of Berek Yuselovich. The bulk of the regiment met its fate at the fortification, being killed by Russian shells or bayonets, 
Berek himself survived and fled abroad with General Jayonchek, Kosciusko's comrade in arms, Kosciusko himself having been made a Russian prisoner somewhat earlier. Berek was at first arrested in Austria, but he managed to escape and reach France, where he found himself among the Polish revolutionary refugees. The Third Partition of Poland, which took place in 1795, transferred to Russia the backbone of the former Jewry of Poland, the dense masses of Lithuania, the provinces of Vilna and Grodno. Prussia absorbed the remainder of Great Poland, including Warsaw and Masovia, as well as the region of Bialystok. Austria rounded off her possession in Little Poland by adding the provinces of Krakow and Lublin. Henceforward, the fortunes of the Polish Jews are identical with those of their brethren in these three countries and exhibit a tricolored appearance, Austro-Prusso-Russian. However, even the third partition of Poland was not final as far as the political distribution of territory is concerned. For a short interval, the ghost of semi-independent Poland dances fitfully about. Twelve years after the third partition, Napoleon I, in juggling with the political map of Europe and calling mushroom states into being, snatched the province of Great Poland from the grasp of Prussia and turned it into the Duchy of Warsaw, a small Polish commonwealth under the rules of the Saxon king, Frederick Augustus III, a grandson of Augustus II, the last Polish king of the Saxon dynasty. This took place in 1807, after the crushing blow which Prussia had received at the hands of Napoleon and after the conclusion of the Peace of Tilsit. Two years later, in 1809, when Napoleon had shattered Austria, he tore off a section of her Polish dominions and joined them to the Duchy of Warsaw. 4. The Duchy of Warsaw and the Reaction under Napoleon Warsaw, having been cleared of the Prussians, once more became, after an interval of 12 years, the capital of a separate Polish state, resuscitated under the patronage of Napoleon. The Duchy of Warsaw, which was made up of the ten departments, or districts, of Great and Little Poland, received from her French master a fairly liberal constitution, two legislative chambers, the Diet and the Senate, and the Code of Napoleon, which had just been introduced in France. The fundamental laws proclaimed the equality of all citizens, serfdom was abolished, and all class privileges were abrogated. The Jews, too, cherished hopes for a better future. The nimbus of Napoleon as the originator of the Jewish parliament and the Parisian synhedrion had not yet faded from the minds of the Jews, and they cherished the hope that the emperor would extend his protection to the Polish Jews as well, but they were grievously disappointed. The first year of the Duchy of Warsaw, 1807-1808, coincided with the critical turn in Napoleon's own policy towards the Jews of France. The great Synhedrion was disbanded, and its disbandment was followed by the humiliating imperial decree of March 17, 1808, which, for a decade, 
checked in almost the entire French Empire the operation of the law providing for Jewish emancipation. This reactionary step was grist to the mill of those sinister forces in Poland, which had learned nothing from the violent upheavals their country had undergone, and even now were not able to reconcile themselves to the idea of granting equality to the unloved tribe. In the spring of 1808, the government of the Dutch was forced to pay attention to the Jewish question in consequence of a petition for civil rights presented by the Jews and in connection with the impending elections to the Diet. The Council of Ministers, which had already been informed of Napoleon's decree, clutched at it as an anchor of salvation. A report was submitted to Duke Frederick Augustus, in which it was pointed out that a somber future would be in store for the Dutch if the Israelitish nation, which is to be found here in vast numbers, were suddenly to be allowed to enjoy civil rights, the reason being that these people cherishes a national spirit alien to the country and engages in unproductive occupations. The Council of Ministers pointed to Napoleon's decree suspending the Jewish question for a time as a convenient means of evading the clause of the Constitution, granting equal rights to all citizens. To make sure of Napoleon's approval in this matter, the government of Warsaw conducted negotiations with its agents in France and with the French minister Champagny, who was a Jew-hater. Napoleon's sympathetic attitude towards this anti-Jewish policy having been ascertained, the Duke promulgated on October 17, 1808, a decree to the following effect. The inhabitants of our Varsovian Dutch professing the Mosaic religion shall be barred for ten years from enjoying the political rights they were about to receive, in the hope that during this interval they may eradicate their distinguishing characteristics which mark them off so strongly from the rest of the population. The foregoing decision, however, will not prevent us from allowing individual members of that persuasion to enjoy political rights even before the expiration of said term, provided they will prove themselves worthy of our high favor and will comply with the conditions which will be set forth by us in a special edict concerning the professors of the Mosaic religion. In this way, the government of Warsaw, in politely couched terms, phrased after the modern French pattern, managed to rob all the professors of the Mosaic religion of the rights of citizenship which the Constitution had granted them. It is true that the decree uses the words political rights, but in reality, the Jews were divested by it of their elementary civil rights. In November 1808, they were forbidden to acquire patrimonial estates belonging to the Shlakta. The humiliating restrictions attaching to the right of domicile in Warsaw were restored and were embodied in a decree issued in 1809, which ordered the Jews to remove within six months from the main streets of the capital, except a few individuals such as bankers, large merchants, physicians, and artists. 
there was a general tendency to return to the anti-Jewish traditions of the old Polish and Prussian legislation. The Jewish community became alarmed. By the time, Warsaw already possessed a goodly number of advanced Jews who had acquired the new culture of Berlin and have divested themselves of the distinguishing marks in dress and outward appearance for which the Jews were penalized with the loss of rights. Relying upon the second clause of the Ducal Decree, which provided for the exceptional treatment of those who shall have eradicated their distinguishing characteristics, a group of 17 Jews of this type made representations to the Minister of Justice in January 1809 to the effect that, having endeavored for a long time by their moral conduct and modern dress to come into closer touch with the rest of the population, they are now certain that they have ceased to be unworthy of civil rights. To this flunkish petition, the Minister of Justice, Lubensky, one of the constitutional ministers who managed to promote the interests of despotism under the cloak of liberalism, retorted with coarse sophistry that constitutional equality before the law did not yet make a man a citizen, for only those could claim to be citizens who were loyal to the sovereign and looked upon this country as their only fatherland. Can those, added Lubensky, who profess the laws of Moses, look upon this country as their fatherland? Do they not wish to return to the land of their fathers? Do they not regard themselves as a separate nation? The mere change of dress is not yet sufficient. The Polish minister had, it would seem, made a thorough study of Napoleon's catechism on the Jews. Aside from the representatives of this satirical culture, who looked after their own personal advantage, there were among the Jews of Warsaw followers of the Berlin Enlightenment, who considered it their duty to make a stand for the rights of their people. On March 17, 1809, five representatives of the Jewish community of Warsaw submitted a memorandum to the Ducal Senate, in which not only note of entreaty but also the undertone of indignation could be discerned. Thousands of members of the Polish nation of the Mosaic persuasion, who, by virtue of having dwelt in this country for many centuries, have acquired the same right to consider it their fatherland as the other inhabitants have hitherto, without any fault of theirs, to the damage of society and as an insult to mankind, for reasons that no one knows, been doomed to humiliation and are groaning under the load of daily oppressions. Contrary to the enlightened spirit of the age and the wisdom of the law of Napoleon the Great, the petitioners go on complaining. The Jews are denied civil rights, have no one to defend them in the Diet or the Senate, and sorrowfully anticipate that even their children and descendants will not live to see happier times. We carry a heavier burden of taxation than the other citizens. We are robbed of the gladsome of opportunity of acquiring a piece of land, of building a little house, of founding a household, of erecting a factory, of engaging in commerce unhampered, in a word, doing that which God and nature hold out to men. 
In Warsaw we are even ordered out of the main streets. And what shall we say of those blessed liberties which citizens value most highly, the right of electing their superiors and of being elected by their compatriots, so as not to be as a dead body in the civic life of the nation? Is the land in which our fathers, paying heavily for this privilege, saw the light of the world always to remain strange to us? Gentlemen of the Senate, we lay before you the tears of the fathers and of the children and of the coming generations. We beg you to hasten the happy day when we may enter upon the enjoyment of the rights and liberties with which Napoleon the Great has endowed the inhabitants of this country and which our beloved country recognizes as the possession of her children. To this petition of the Jews, who classed themselves as members of the Polish nation and were ready to renounce their own national characteristics, the Senate replied by presenting the Duke with a heartless report in which it was pointed out that the Jews had brought upon themselves the curtailment of their rights by their dishonest pursuits and by their mode of life subversive of the welfare of society. It was necessary first to reform the life of the Jews and to appoint a committee to elaborate plans of reform. It may be remarked parenthetically that a committee of this kind had been in existence since the end of 1808 and had worked out a plan of reform akin in spirit to the project of the Quadrennial Diet and the Parisian Synhedrion. But all these committees were in reality nothing but a decent way of bearing the Jewish question. At the very time when the government of the Varsovian Dutch rejected the Jewish appeal for equality under the pretext that the Jews lacked patriotism, there lived and worked in Warsaw a shining example of Polish patriotism, Berek Yoselovich, the hero of the revolution of 1794. After roaming about for 12 years in Western Europe, where, having enlisted in the ranks of the Polish legions of Dombrovsky, he took part in many Napoleonic wars. Berek returned home as soon as the Dutch was established and received an appointment as commander of a detachment in the regular Polish army. The dream of the old fighter had failed to come true. In vain had his Jewish regiment filled the trenches of Praga with their dead bodies. Twelve years later, the brethren of those who had sacrificed their lives for their fatherland had to beg for the rights of citizenship. But Berek seemed to have forgotten his former ambition on behalf of his fellow Jews, having in the meantime become a professional soldier. It was solely Polish patriotism and personal bravery that prompted the last military exploits of his life. When, in the spring of 1809, war broke out between the Dutch and the Austrians, Berek Yuselovich, at the head of his regiment, rushed against the enemy's cavalry near the town of Kotsk. He fell on May 5th after a series of heroic deeds. The papers lamented the loss of the hero. A representative of the Polish aristocracy, the proud Stanislav Pototsky, devoted a special discourse to his memory at a meeting of the Society of the Friends of Science in Warsaw. Thou hast saddened, thus spoke the orator, 
the land of heroes, though valiant Colonel Berek, when unmeasured boldness drove thee into the midst of the enemy. Well does the fatherland remember also thy old wounds and thy former exploits. Remember eternally that thou wast the first to give thy people an example, an example of rejuvenated heroism, and that thou hast resuscitated the image of those men of valor over whom in days gone by wept the daughters of Zion. The Polish nation remembered, and that for a short time only, the one Berek, but the thousands of his oppressed brethren were forgotten. The only way in which the gratitude of the fatherland manifested itself was a special order of the duke granting permission to Berek's widow, who found it difficult to live and bring up her children on a scanty pension, to reside in the streets of Warsaw from which the Jews were barred and to engage there in the sale of liquor. Other civil privileges the Jews could not hope for, even by way of exception. This state of affairs could not very well inspire the Jewish population with great love for military service, although the Jews had been graciously permitted to discharge it in person. With a few exceptions, the Jews preferred to pay an additional tax rather than spill their blood for a country which offered them obligations without rights. The decree of January 29, 1812, legalized this substitution of personal military service by a monetary ransom, the grand total of which amounted to 700,000 gulden a year. On the brink of destruction during the war tempest of 1812, the Duchy of Warsaw still found leisure to strike an economic blow at the Jews. At the suggestion of Minister Lubensky, a ducal decree was issued on September 30, forbidding the Jews, after the lapse of two years, to sell liquor and keep taverns, which meant, in other words, that tens of thousands of Jewish families were to be deprived of their livelihood. Secretly, the government justified this measure by impending augmentation of the territory of the Dutch and the restoration of old Poland, where strict economic measures were necessary to keep the returning Jewish population in bounds. But the confidence reposed in the power of Napoleon was not justified. The idol was overthrown. The Duchy of Warsaw, the pale specter of an independent Poland, vanished into air, and the fate of the country again lay in the hands of the three powers that had divided it, particularly Russia. The millions of Jews in Russian Poland were well aware of what they had to expect at the hands of their new rulers. End of section 18